0: Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing.
1: I don't think about a right faith, I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic, it brings me peace.
0: I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kinda just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know, you just gotta follow it. You just gotta follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure
1: out what I believe right now.
0: Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. I'm Shane Rosenthal, and on this episode, I'll be talking with Abdu Murray about his conversion to the Christian faith from Islam. Abdu is the president of Embrace the Truth International and the author of a number of books, including Grand Central Question and Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. Abdu Murray, thanks for joining me.
1: Shane, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: So for those who aren't familiar with your story, I'd love for you to start off by talking a little bit about your background, both as an attorney and as a Muslim, and how you ended up converting to Christianity.
1: Absolutely, I'd love to. Um, so I was raised as a Muslim, uh, the, you know, as a Shiite Muslim, and the, the proper way to say it is Shia. As you know, there are two sort of sects within Islam, the two main sects. There's a lot of different ones. But the two main ones are the Sunni, which is the majority, and the Shia, which are the minority. But it's a sizable minority. Well, I was raised as a Shiite Muslim. And uh, I believe that people should believe true things and not false things. Uh, I thought Islam was true, and therefore the things that were contradictory to Islam were therefore false. So I began to reach out to people who weren't Muslims and show them why they were wrong and I was right. I was born and raised in the United States, come from a Lebanese family. Uh, We have a huge population of Muslims in this area in Michigan, but we grew up in a suburb where... Um, It wasn't very diverse back then. You know, it was sort of a, um, we were sort of the sort of dollop of olive oil in the pot of rice, you know, as it were. So we were sort of exotic and people would ask me questions about what I believed. And uh, I would tell them, well, I would engage with Christians and I would ask them the question, why are you a Christian? And it wasn't just them. It was, you know, Jews, anybody else that that I knew, atheists. Uh, But Christians were sort of low-hanging fruit because they were sort of abundant. You know, back in the 80s and the 90s, it was uh, fashionable to say you were a Christian, even if you didn't mean it. Now it's not as fashionable as it was back then. And so I would ask them the question. I'd say, you know, why are you a Christian? And they would say something along the lines of, well, uh, I guess I'm a Lutheran because we go to church uh, at a Lutheran church on Christmas and Easter. So I'm a Lutheran. And they would even say it like that. It sounded like a question more than it did like an answer. So I would ask them, are you are you sure? Because I'm sure you know. But then I'd say something like this. Are are you telling me that tradition is the reason you believe something, that you trust your eternal soul to a religious system that someone else has thought through? Have you thought it through yourself? And the answer was usually no. Uh, And I'd say, well, great. Well, I thought it through for you. Here's 15 reasons why you're wrong. Interesting. Well, along the way, though, there were some Christians who actually knew what they were talking about and who not only responded to my challenges, but had a few challenges of their own that they would lodge my way. And uh, that started me thinking that maybe this Christian faith isn't as easy to debunk as I once thought. So I was reading the Bible to try to find a contradiction, a systemic contradiction. This is in my college days. Uh, reading the Bible to find a big contradiction, like something that like, you know, Jesus says in Luke, X. And then he says in Matthew or John, not X, something completely different. And it was fundamental to the message. Well, I was trying to knock the faith out of some of these guys who were talking to me and by reading the Bible. And I come across a passage in Luke chapter three, verse seven and following. If you know it's John the Baptist, and he's talking to those who are coming to him, and he says to them, Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Meaning of horse God's judgment. And then he says this remarkable statement. He says, Do not even begin to think to yourself. You have Abraham as your father. For I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. In other words, your tradition does not save you. Truth trumps tradition. Well, this bothered me a lot because that's what I was saying to Christians. I'd say, why are you a Christian? They'd say, tradition. I'd say, not good enough. Well, John the Baptist is agreeing with me. And why that bothered me so much was because for two reasons. One is because this Bible that I was reading, I thought was corrupted. Muslims believe that the Bible was once God's word, but became corrupted over time. Right. And I thought, well, this is a, a corrupt book, but it's making so much sense. And the second reason why it bugged me was because it challenged me. And all the times I had asked Christians, why are you a Christian? And they would say tradition. They never asked me, why are you a Muslim? And the reason was because I didn't give them a chance to. I would begin to launch into my reasons why they were wrong. And had they asked me, I probably would have given them a million you know, little evidences for why I thought Islam was true and all that. But the real reason would have been tradition, the very reason I was chiding them for having. So this got me thinking, maybe I should examine these faiths side by side and every other ism and schism that's out there with an objective view Not just swallow wholesale the arguments for and the arguments against Christianity or Islam, as it were, but really see what holds up to scrutiny. Now, I was totally confident Islam would win the day, but I wanted to be as objective as I possibly could. Well, over the course of years, I began to study these things and I began to see the mounting evidence in favor of the Christian faith that the Bible has been faithfully transmitted down through the centuries that in that Bible, Jesus says he's the son of God who takes away the sins of the world by dying on the cross. And then he rises from the dead to prove that he was right. I had intellectually assented at some point to all of that, but I couldn't embrace it as true because there was gonna be a price. My identity, you know, community issues, all that kind of stuff. But what really sealed the deal for me was the way in which the Christian faith was not only evidentially true, but it was existentially satisfying. Because as a Muslim, I believed in a cardinal idea. The cardinal idea in all of Islam is that God is great. He is incomparably great. Yeah, Allah Akbar. Exactly. We hear them say that all the time. So Muslims say this phrase all the time, Allahu Akbar, and it means that God is greater. So God's greatness is the pinnacle idea or it's the central idea of Islam. And it was a central idea for the search that I had, which was what worldview allows me, if God exists, I think there's good reasons to believe he does, to worship a God who is truly the greatest possible being. Well, I began to see some things in the, in the Bible and in the story of Jesus. It wasn't just that he was evidentially true, but that Jesus, as the incarnation of God, was the greatest possible being. And one of the linchpins for me was this, is that if God is the greatest possible being, then he would express the greatest possible ethic which is love, then he would do it in the greatest possible way, which is self-sacrifice. If he didn't express the greatest possible ethic, then he wouldn't be the greatest possible being. And if he didn't express the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way, then he still wouldn't be the greatest possible being. But there you have it in the Christian message that God does express love through self-sacrifice. In fact, he does it better than we do. You know, we're capable of self-sacrifice. And if God himself can't do what we can do, then he's somehow morally less than us, and God forbid. Well, the reality is, is that God doesn't just sacrifice as well as we do. He sacrifices better than we do. For we sacrifice for loved ones or maybe a stranger, but our love and our sacrifice has limits. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. I remember where I was when I read the verse. For God demonstrates his love, his greatest possible love, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us that's amazing to me. And that's when I realized that the God I was looking for all my life was evidentially evident. He was theologically possible and existentially touching in the Christian faith.
0: Before we started the interview, you mentioned that one of the things that propelled you to begin asking questions was uh, hearing Greg Hokel on the radio talking about evidences, and that rather than being one of those Christians who you could just easily dismiss, this was a thoughtful Christian. Could you tell that story a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Greg's a good friend, and I know he's a good friend of yours as well. And um, I was uh, driving in my car, and I happened to be listening to a radio broadcast, and Greg was a guest. And um, it wasn't about Islam. It wasn't about Christianity. It was about relativism. And I already agreed that relativism just simply doesn't hold water. It's self-defeating in so many ways. But here's this Christian who is clearly enunciating the Christian faith. He was bringing the Christian faith into the discussion, not just philosophy, but the Christian faith as well, and he was merging the two. And I thought to myself, well, that's interesting. I I didn't think I would hear someone who actually could bring philosophy to bear on the Christian message. I was already sort of on the journey, but then it was propelling me forward. because, like, oh my goodness, all the Christians that I had been wrestling with and sort of debunking so easily, there are those out there who aren't so easy to debunk. And in fact, we're offering not only responses, but a positive case for the Christian message. And it got me thinking.
0: You write, having been a proud Muslim my whole life, only to be confronted with the evidence for the gospel, yet wanting so desperately to deny it. My mind had accepted the overwhelming evidence establishing Jesus' claims to be God's Son and the Savior of the world through the cross. But I allowed that truth to be eclipsed by the looming losses I might suffer if I chose a life for Christ. Identity, close relationships, community, even safety, all were at risk if I followed Jesus, and the cost was just too much to bear, leading me to years of indecision. I think in one of your books, you even say that it actually took you around nine years to fully
1: embrace the truth of the gospel. Can you go into that a little Sure, absolutely. Uh, it did take nine years. Um, it's funny because it didn't take nine years to find the answers. Those weren't hard to find. Uh, the answers aren't hard to find, but they are hard to accept. And the reason I say that is because coming from an Eastern mindset as well, even though I was you know raised in the West and I lived in the West and I did my search in the West, there still is that sense of communal care is that there's an honor-shame mentality. Even in a Western innocence-guilt culture, I live within a subculture that is honor-shame-based, which means that what I do say, think, and even believe reflects on the collective as much as it does on me as an individual. And if the collective feels shame about what I believe, well, then I become a shameful person, and that becomes very difficult to bear. And this is true not just in Islam. This is true in Hinduism and Buddhism and all other... In fact, I know Christians who left one denomination, who are Arabs, who left one denomination of Christianity for another, and they felt the same level of fear and shame and scorn and these kind of things. That's a big part of what it means to be in the East. Uh, So a big part of it, though, for me was identity because I liked being a Muslim. Muslims would ask me questions about Islam. Uh, There was a certain pride building up in that. I took a certain arrogant pride in my own sort of piety that um, I didn't smoke, drink, do drugs, have sex before marriage. Uh, And so I I sort of lorded it over people who did. I stood in quiet judgment of those who did. And so here I am faced with this worldview that says I'm a sinner and that all my piety is as nothing before God. And that if I chose Jesus to be my savior, or if I recognize that Jesus is my savior, well, then I can't be my own. And all the things that I would put my faith in including my own image and including the sort of adoration of other people, I would have to give that up. And I didn't want to do that. And that identity was too much for me for me to bear in terms of loss. And it's funny because I remember reading so often the learnings Jesus would say is that, you know, you have to deny yourself, die to yourself, and then come after him and follow him that way. That was that I flippantly read through until the, the evidence for the Bible and for the Christian faith became so obvious to me that, Jesus's words were suddenly very pungent in my mind, uh, that they hmm. were not just offshoots, things that we read over so easily in the West. Yeah. Guiding to yourself is a little bit more difficult if you take it from an Eastern mindset.
0: In the East and the Middle East, you say, being unashamed of the gospel means more than just risking invites to parties, losing job promotions, or not getting into a favorite university. It could also mean loss of freedom and even loss of life. Unpack that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think that... Um, Uh, In the West, we tend to have a a little bit more of a a comfortable Christianity. Is it becoming more and more uncomfortable to be Christian? Which is, in one sense, a good thing. I mean, there's a lot of bad to it as well, but in one sense, it's a good thing because people won't consider us background noise anymore. I think that what's going on in the East, you know, BBC reported that there was a study done on the persecution of Christians outside the West, and they said it's almost a genocide. I'm not sure how it's almost a genocide. It looks like it's deliberately a genocide. But we it as it may, whether it's almost one or is one, the reality is Christians around the world, especially in the East, are suffering a heavy, heavy price for their faith. But it's also the place where the faith is growing the fastest, hmm. which is just a testimony of the history of, of Christianity. Wherever it's been oppressed is where it's growing the fastest.
0: The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. I think that's that's, universe- that's been true for centuries, and it's still true. Is it, you know, Many of us wonder, would I be able to withstand that kind of persecution? Well, if you are uncomfortable for your faith, you'll get a good inclination of just how strong your faith actually is. And the good news is that God gives the strength so that we can have an unshakable faith in light of horrendous circumstances.
0: Our Lord says one of the strangest things ever uttered in human history. He says, rejoice in your sufferings.
1: Whoever said that? Anywhere. Well, you see that in Acts chapter two, where the, the disciples are rejoice. At their persecution yeah um and then paul says this b- equally bizarre thing and you see, you can see the consistency right jesus does it his disciples live it and paul lives it out when he says for it has been granted to you to suffer yeah. in the greek that word means lavishly given it's a gift what a bizarre thing yeah in fact uh when you look at c.s lewis's phrase and it's famous now where he says that god whispers to us in our pleasure he speaks to us in our conscience but he shouts to us in our pain it's this is megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I remember thinking, Shane, that um, people never ask, why me or where are you, God, when they win the lotto. No one ever asks, right. how could this possibly be? Where is God in all this when they get a promotion? They ask the deep questions, the fundamental questions, when they lose the promotion, when they're being persecuted for their faith. Um, we're just built that way. We're built to listen to God more in the midst of pain And I think our faith thrives and grows when it's being challenged.
0: Yeah. You tell the story about sitting with an imam who told you that the Bible's unblushing descriptions of the prophet's shameful acts is one of the things that he thought disqualified it as having come from God. Can you tell us a little bit about that engagement and how you responded?
1: Yeah. uh, So it was one I used to have, too. I used to have the same view that the Bible describes people like David and uh, Solomon and even Abraham as... Uh, morally checkered people, uh, and how can God entrust his message to people who have no integrity or who actually have latches in integrity, which is why, why Muslims believe that the prophets are infallible. Like they they we can't be morally fallible. And I pointed out to him, I said, you know, it's interesting you say that because I'm a trial lawyer, and I can tell you this right now, is that whenever a witness comes to the stand and forthrightly tells you their flaws or tells you a part of the story that hurts their case. They become more credible in the eyes of the jury because they're clearly not doctoring the facts. Right, They look more credible, not less credible. In the very fact of the Bible, not that the Jews didn't realize, oh my goodness, how do we let this fact about David sneak in here? They knew it was part of the story. The fact that the Bible forthrightly tells you the shortcomings of its most important figures doesn't decrease its credibility. It actually increases its credibility because if the Bible were full of legends, you'd have like a King Arthur type of thing or a Robin Hood type of thing where these men go from pretty good guys to paragons of virtue we should all emulate. That's not what the Bible describes. It describes people who are just like us, broken like us, yet God uses them. So rather than actually showing a shameful side, it shows that God honors those who otherwise would bring shame for their actions. So it's interesting in the Qur'an you see a story where Abraham takes his son up a mountain. They don't—they think it's Ishmael, we think it's Isaac, of course. That isn't important. The Qur'an says he takes his son up a mountain to sacrifice at God's command, to kill his son. And then God stays his hand. Now what's interesting is, in this particular story, in the Qur'an, it says, meaning in a royal we sense, God says, and we ransomed him, meaning the son, with a momentous sacrifice. So my my question is this, what's the ransom for? What's the sacrifice for if it was merely a test of Abraham's faith to see if he would do it? What's the ransom for? In fact, it's it's an important Islamic holiday called Eid al-Adha, where they commemorate this whole thing, the sacrifice. So if we don't need God's mercy, and it's not important, then why would Abraham sacrifice his son only to be stopped and then have his son ransomed with a momentous sacrifice? Maybe because even Abraham needs a ransom. Even his son needs a ransom. And that son eventually is ransomed by the son that God himself provides. And I think that's a bridge oftentimes to Muslims as well. Uh, because we need a kind of God who, is, who can balance the idea of mercy, which is getting what you don't deserve, right. and justice, which is getting what you do deserve. And God is both maximally just and maximally forgiving or merciful. And how he does both is the cross. Back in
0: 2014, you published your first book, Grand Central Question, answering the critical concerns of the major worldviews. Can you give us an overview of, of what that book is about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's actually my second book, uh, but my first one was more of a specific thing to the Middle East. Gotcha. And so the central idea there was every worldview, whether it's a theistic worldview or an atheistic or a non-theistic worldview, is trying to answer the central questions of life. If you have a worldview that's blasé about the big questions of life, You know Where do we come from? Why are we here? Why is the world the way it is? And how do we get out of this mess? If your worldview isn't trying to answer those questions, you don't really have a worldview. What you have is a set of precepts that you basically stumble your way through life with. But every worldview tries to answer those four main questions. So what I do in the book, and Grand Central Question, is say that every worldview tries to answer all four questions, but particular worldviews focus on one of those as their grand central question. So it's broken up into three sections. There's a section on secular humanism, which is atheistic thinking, but it's more of a worldview sort of outward facing thing. And pantheistic thinking, uh, religions of the East, and their Western sort of iterations, the Western daughters of Eastern thought, you know, Scientology, Oprah, Chopra, and everyone in between. And then Islam, the uh, other, you know, sort of large monotheistic religion in the world. So each of those has their own grand central question. And what I point out in the book is that the Christian faith affirms that question, but then offers an answer that legitimizes that question as well and says, come over here. This is where the answer is really found. This is where the question actually makes sense.
0: And when it comes to discussing your convictions with people from other worldviews, you write, I'm an attorney by training, so the best way I can think of to expose someone's underlying biases and barriers is by asking questions. Why do you think that?
1: There's a period, I was a civil lawyer, a civil trial lawyer, where you know you go in and there's companies It's it's more about money than it's about criminal defense and all these things. Well, how do we get to the truth of what happened, whether it's a civil case or a criminal case? Is the lawyer asks the witnesses questions. The witnesses are the ones who actually give the answers. And the biases are uncovered for the jury to see or the truth is uncovered for the jury to see. Now, during the course of a legal proceeding, there's a thing called discovery. And discovery is the period of time where the lawyers... Uh, review documents, they sit down with witnesses, they take their depositions, which is uh, under oath. Well, I've discovered that when you ask a witness questions, whether they're a lay witness or an expert witness, what they think, not just factually, but how they view the world comes out in their answers. It's a non-threatening way to get information, uh, but it also exposes the assumptions people make. I found this in the legal sphere, but I've also found it in my evangelistic encounters as well. Uh, where you can expose the, the biases people come to, not just in how they interpret the evidence, but what they're doing in the conversation in the first place. So a good example was uh, I was giving a talk, one of my very first talks at a university level outside of a church. It was on the problem of evil from a Muslim and a Christian perspective. And I had a counterpart, a Muslim counterpart. And during the talk, there was this guy all the way in the back. And uh, you could tell he was upset with me and didn't like what I had to say. When I was using philosophy and the Bible and other things together. Well, sure enough, the first person that could come up to me as soon as I closed my notes and we were over was this guy. He shot up. I could tell he was coming at me, man. And I knew he was going to be upset. And he starts saying, he starts yelling at me. And he says, "Um, you used logic and philosophy during your talk, but you believe something so stupid as the Trinity. How could you believe something so stupid? Now, this is, he's rushing at me. So I'm thinking, I don't know what's going to happen next. Well, I'm a big guy. I'm not a small man. You can't tell on video, but I'm six foot eight, 280 pounds. So I'm not easily intimidated. But I still don't want to get into this brawl, whether it's physical or even you know, intellectual. So I'm not interested in showing how smart I am or how smart this guy is. I want to have a real discussion. So in order to diffuse the situation, I asked a question about motivation. I said, you know, you asked a number of things you said were deep, ideas we need to get into philosophy logic trinity um how this all matters but you said it so angrily so let me ask you a question do you want to have a fight right now or do you want to have a discussion because if you want to have a fight there's a perfectly good wall right there you can go and run as fast as you can into that wall and you'll get the same result you will with me it won't move and you'll get a headache so that'll happen and you'll and you'll have silence in response i'm not interested in having a fight with you i am interested in having a discussion what do you think And he sort of was shamed into it. And he's like, "Uh, okay, I want to have a discussion. Now, a crowded joke had formed. And what I had done was expose the motivation behind what his actual bringing this up was all about. Now, he's Middle Eastern. I'm Middle Eastern. So a lot of hands are flying around. We're getting loud. But that's just because that's how we talk. But it was a good discussion. And I would ask him a series of questions about what he thinks the Trinity actually is. And it turns out he hadn't ever really examined What the Christian faith teaches about the Trinity, he had just, like I did years and years before, had just swallowed what critics of the Christian faith had said. You know, putting up the straw man, knocking him down, and thinking, I did something. It was during the course of our conversation that he began to see that this is actually different than what he's been led to believe and needed to wrestle with it. And there was a young lady who was there who was studying philosophy, a Muslim as well, and she was paying attention with like laser-sharp focus the whole time. And we had another great conversation afterwards. But it was all because I asked a question about assumptions and about motivations and having the conversation.
0: Yeah. You know, a lot of times that's not just a non-Christian problem where we get into the discussion, to the debate, primarily with the idea of clobbering the other person. You know, this is my view and I hold it tightly, but that's not really a, a helpful tactic, is it?
1: It's not. In fact, when you have a conviction... It's not wrong to have a conviction, but we hold them with a closed fist, not an angry, defiant fist. I mean, we hold them tightly because they're important to us. You ever try to pry someone's fist open? It hurts both you and the person whose fist you're trying to pry open. It can be painful. So we have to recognize that, which is why questions are just gentle. They're gentle pressure to see if someone's willing to open up.
0: And your goal is to win the person, not the argument.
1: And that is the fundamental goal. I've known too many people who have turned apologetics away from being the art and science of Christian persuasion and into the art and science of making someone sorry they asked.
0: Right. Yeah. Showing how smart I am.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and what could be more detrimental to a conversation than making someone either feel stupid or making you seem arrogant? Yeah.
0: You say that everyone has an emotional attachment to their own view, no matter how trivial. Some attachments are more easily severed than others, but they're still there. And this, you say, is as true for Christians as it is for anyone else. Why is that an important point to grasp?
1: Well, I think that as we try to wrestle with various ideas, in-house debates within the Christian faith, uh, there's two things. The first thing is, is that, let's say we wrestle over Arminianism, Reformed theology. I've seen it. It wasn't even on Calvinism versus Arminianism. It was over the rapture, is pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. And one Christian says, whenever I see this God-dishonoring doctrine of a pre-trib rapture, I try to smite it with all of my might. Wow! Oh my goodness, how King James of you. But the problem with that is two things. One is it shows a lack of brotherhood and charity and fraternity within the Christian faith. And how many times have you and I, you and I both have heard this, is that how could I be a Christian when they can't even agree on what Genesis means Right. or blah, blah, blah. I think that's unfair, but I think it's understandable as a perception and we give it to them.
0: You say that careful listening, as important as it is, has become something of a lost art.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I, I can't remember who said it, but uh, someone said that the biggest myth about communication is the perception that it's actually occurred. And I think that that's right. I'm, I'm sorry, th- what has occurred? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, I think that uh, and I'm a victim of this as well, and everyone can be. We need to make sure that we are constantly policing ourselves on this phenomenon. Do we listen to understand or do we listen to respond? We have what I call yeah, but syndrome. It's like a Tourette syndrome, but all we say is, yeah, but someone says something, we say, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but it's like you're saying, yeah, as if you're hearing what the person is saying, but you're saying, but because you cannot wait for them to be done, right. so you can have your say. There's a time to have your say, but I think a good response only happens when you, when you listen first to understand and then respond. And this is what James instructs us. It doesn't, he say,
0: be slow to speak and quick to listen.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and, and, and boy, how hard is that? I, I love the fact that James, as a Middle Easterner, says this because we are quite possibly the worst offenders of this. <laughs> um, and he speaks it to his own culture so beautifully mm. because he's saying, stop being so quick. Just listen for a minute, even a minute. Gives you insight, and it shows respect to the other person as well, right? First Peter three fifteen is sort of like the hallmark verse for every Christian apologist, right? Because the word apologia is in there.
0: Yeah, be always ready to give an apologia, and a defense for the hope that rests within you.
1: Absolutely, and there's so much into that too. And it's even just the word hope. You're providing a reason for the hope you have, not just for the reason for the beliefs you have. To anyone who asks. Now, that all by itself, by the way, is interesting because one, it affirms the idea of asking questions, mm-hmm. and two. It challenges the Christian. Do you live a life so hope-filled that people ask you why? Hmm. And it isn't just, I happen to be a Christian and I proclaim things. I'm all for that. That's what I do. But do you live a life so hopeful that even your life suggests people want to ask you questions? But the hallmark, you know, of the ministry that I try to do comes from Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And this goes right to what we're talking about, Shane, is that the Apostle Paul says... That to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And then he says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. And this is the most beautiful part of the whole passage for me. It's the culmination of it. So you may know how you ought to answer each person. He doesn't say answer each question, answer each issue, each controversy, each worldview, answer each person. And the reason I think is because questions, issues, controversies, and worldviews don't need answers people need answers and they use their questions to get them. So until you answer the person by asking questions about what they really care about, you're just spouting off your position. You're just you, you, all you have is talking points. You don't have conversation starters and you don't have truth that is transformative. you just have truth that is propositional.
0: Yeah, but how do we nurture that curiosity of leaning in to listen? You just mentioned, you know, all we have is talking points. We're mentored by media professionals who are constantly giving us their talking points and they're constantly yelling at the other person on the other side of the fence.
1: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. It's such a good question because, you know, we have this phrase that's popular in Christian culture is to be in but not of the world. Yeah. Uh, We are very much in and of the world when it comes to how we communicate in other ways too. But I think communication is one of those ways. Um, And part of this is because we imbibe in one of the worst inventions of the past 40 years, which is 24-hour news. It takes about an hour to tell you the actual news. The other 23 hours of the day are spent with opinion and yelling and talking heads and these kind of things. If I see one more headline that says, conservative destroys a liberal or Christian puts atheist in his place. Yeah. Really? Is that what you really want to do is put them in their place? You see, we, we went away from what Oz Guinness calls the civil public square, and now we're in the gladiatorial arena of the Colosseum. Mm. We want our champion to win, and we'd like to be that champion, by the way. So we engage in this. And there's a sense of urgency that's part that attends to this, is that we see, first of all, we see us versus them as the first thing. So I would say the way to cultivate true communication is to not see your engagement with someone as us versus them, is to say that we're in this together. If the gospel teaches me anything, it's that I am a sinner in need of a savior, and I found that savior, not because I'm so great, but because God is great and calls me to that that knowledge of who Christ is and that I need his foreign righteousness. And so they, whoever they are, was once me. Yeah, I think that, that us versus them mentality needs to be done away with. And two, it's to see the fundamental starting point of the Christian faith is that we are all made in God's image. All of us are made in God's image. Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, my dentist, we're all made in God's image. Surely not your dentist. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's, there's, there's sometimes I wish I'd be. you sure? This guy too? No, he's, he's, a, he's a good guy. But yes, indeed, even when I'm in pain, I have to remind myself, Christ died for this guy too.
0: In, in 2018, you released your third book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. What's this book about in a nutshell?
1: Yeah, in a nutshell, it is on the whole idea of a post-truth world and how do we respond into a world that doesn't deny that truth exists, it just denies that truth is important. Um, I think we're living in a post-truth world and not a post-modern world anymore. I think post-modernism has died its death, but from the ashes of post-modernism isn't the idea that truth is important, it's a post-truth idea. So the the fundamental distinction here is this, is that post-modernism says there's no such thing as truth. But you can reason with someone like this. In fact, I heard Greg Kokel on the radio reasoning about why postmodernism is false. Because it's self-defeating. When you say there's no such thing as truth, that statement's either true or it's false. And if it's true, then there is truth. And if it's false, then why did you say it? Uh, These kind of things. But post-truth doesn't say there's no such thing as truth. Post-truth mindsets say truth is important, but only insofar as it feeds and satisfies my feelings and my preferences. So truth exists, but I don't care unless it happens to comport with what I like.
0: Yeah, you write that we don't care about the truth if it gets in the way of our personal preferences. In this soft mode of post-truth, the truth exists objectively, but our subjective feelings and opinions matter more.
1: Yeah, and that's difficult because you say, how do you talk to somebody who looks at you and might even nod politely, or nowadays not so politely, um, that your claims you're making? Uh, when you give them facts, evidence, reason, and logic, and they look at you and say, yeah, but none of that matters because I feel like this. And they're like, okay, I I hear what you're saying. I can even acknowledge what you're saying is true. doesn't matter. How do you actually talk to that person? So saving truth is about pointing out the consequences of a post-truth mindset because we're increasingly a pragmatic society. Tell me what works. I'll believe what works. I'll do what works. Well, if you can expose that post-truth thinking doesn't work, Then people will go away from it. And then what are they left with? Well, they're left with the truth. And so what i try to point out is the confusion and the culture of confusion we're in, how it leads to chaos and how clarity about ideas of human freedom, dignity, sexuality, pluralism, science and faith, how clarity will lead us ultimately to a sense of fulfillment that comports with reality as we know it. You also
0: say that if the evidence fits our preferences and opinions, then all is well and good. If it doesn't, then the evidence is deemed inadmissible or offensive, with offense being a kind of solvent against an otherwise sound argument. Uh, that reminds me of one of the events we find in the Gospels when uh, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, uh, did you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? And he just simply responds to them saying, pay no attention to their offense, they're blind guides. You know, so that idea of offense Of being offended is nothing new really, but it's simply something that appears to be increasing as our culture becomes more influenced by feelings rather than truth. Would you agree?
1: I totally would agree. In fact, as I pointed out, offense is the universal solvent because what it does is is that it insulates me from actual argument and actual engagement. If I can simply say I'm offended by what you said, I mean, you'll notice something too. When it comes to various claims, everything becomes either racially insensitive Sexually insensitive, socially insensitive in some way, religiously insensitive, and it becomes more and more a stretch to say, really, that's insensitive? How is that possibly insensitive? And the reason is, is because if I can label you as an offensive person, well, then I can shut you out. Right. I can completely discount every argument you have so that when you bring facts and evidence and reason, I don't have to become uncomfortable anymore. You see, I think we've equated being uncomfortable with being offended. And that isn't the same thing. The truth is supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's supposed to challenge our views. All of us, whether Christian or non-Christian, believe it or not, we all have faulty views. And when the evidence comes against those views and the truth smacks us in the face, we're supposed to be uncomfortable because without the discomfort, we won't grow and change. But offense becomes the solvent that prevents a sound argument from being entertained. Yeah, you talk about the problem of the confirmation bias that a lot of us, instead
0: of searching for the truth, we're actually more interested in confirming what we already believe so that things that we hear from the outside, if we're listening, (laughs) end up just making us feel uncomfortable. That's the way it works. When other things that don't comport with what we already assume to be true, it just kind of causes us pain. And when you experience that discomfort, it's actually a moment to have some self-realization that. Wait a minute, this is a different worldview, a different idea. Let's think it through instead of reacting emotionally.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I can speak from experience on this. You know, before I chide the world for being post truth, I got to remember something. I was once very post truth. You know, I believed in truth. I thought Islam was true. I thought other things were false. And I said, I'll go where the evidence leads. But it took me nine years to become a Christian because for the longest time, my preference was that either this worldview of Christianity isn't true. Or I can syncretize it with Islam so I don't have to make a decision. And so I was quite post-truth. I claimed truth was important, but I knew my preferences and my feelings mattered more. So before I chide the rest of the world for this, I have to recognize this instinct within myself. But yeah, I think that the role of feelings uh, has been so romanticized and so um, lionized as a Mm -hmm. virtue that we say words like, let me tell you my truth. Right. What they really mean is my perspective. So this can be valid if understood from perspective. So let's say you have a victim of sexual assault, and someone says, I want you on the show today so you can speak your truth. What they mean is tell your story. But what the culture has now transformed that into is that I can tell my truth in terms of how I feel sexually, how I feel in a gender sense, how I feel in a religious sense, And because it's quote-unquote my truth, it becomes sacralized, it becomes sacrosanct. You dare not challenge my truth. But why? Because each individual person is no longer a free individual, they are an autonomous individual. And that is a different state of affairs. Freedom and autonomy are not the same thing. And we become gods in our striving for autonomy. But in your
0: book, you talk about a conversation that you had in an empty auditorium with a young adult who began having
1: doubts about the faith he was raised in. Can you tell that story? Yeah, absolutely. This is such a, a unique story. So I was speaking at a place where a lot of Christians were. It was a camp. And uh, there were a lot of Christians who come to it. And they come to it with you know it was a long tradition of family going there. And this young man was going to the camp every single year. And he loved going there because he liked the people. But he had become an atheist a, a year or so, maybe even a little bit longer before that. And so I talked to his parents and I asked, well, what happened? And they said, well, he would come to us with questions. He would ask us questions. And we said, son, we don't question here. We don't doubt. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it kind of a thing. And I did say to them, I said, can I try and make a comment to you? And I, I mean it with all the respect I can muster, honestly. is that if you want to help your son become an atheist, that's a good way to do it. Because he's coming to you with questions. And everyone, everyone gets answers to their questions from somewhere it's going to be you or the internet atheists or whoever it might be so they said but you know what he's been doing he's been coming to your apologetics classes in the morning and he's really interested in what you have to say he wants to talk to you would you talk to him like of course i would talk to him absolutely so the evening chapel service was over the auditorium had cleared out and me and this young man sat down and i asked him a question i said so what are your big hang-ups with the christian faith and he launched into a couple of objections he had, you know, evolution disproves a need for God. The Bible's been changed. So many times you can't believe it. The Bible condones slavery. And He went on to a litany of things. Said, well, that's a lot. Uh, what are the three big ones? The ones that you, if you had this resolved, you would move the needle forward in terms of believing in God. He, he listed those. And so I asked him a question. I said, well, where'd you get this from? What books have you read? He said, well, I don't really read books. I watch videos. Okay, well, what videos have you watched? It was all YouTube. And believe it or not, comedy central. Like, are you telling me you've come to your opinions about God's existence from a channel that literally has the word comedy in the title? Really? You haven't read one book on it? Can you name for me any Christians you've read who've responded to the objections you've heard? None. None. Or even any videos? None. This is one of the first times you'd ever heard a Christian actually respond to any of these objections. So my question back to him was, do you want atheism to be true? Or are you curious if there's a God? Because it sounds like you want atheism to be true, judging from the fact that you haven't read any Christian responses to this stuff. Just simply swallowed everything atheists have told you. And you've swallowed it from the probably the least critical thinking atheist. A lot of great atheists you should be reading. Well, we had amazing conversation. It was long, it was good. And I said, Any questions or more? He's like, No, you've answered. I want to figure that out. I saw the parents and they said, this has moved the needle significantly. Only because, not because I'm so eloquent and so bright. That's not the reason. I hope it's not the reason. My goodness, because if that's the reason, we're all in trouble. It's because he longed to have questions actually answered. And I also did challenge his motivation. I think he wanted to buck the system. And when you challenge that, I think people actually start to realize their own biases and their own confirmation biases. And... Uh, it was a fruitful discussion after that because of that.
0: Yeah, I, I think when it comes to young adults, especially those who are raised in the faith, there's kind of an assumption that this is the faith that your parents are handing you, and it's just assumed to be true in the family. But often, especially in, a, in an environment where you know, you kind of have, uh, the Bible says it, I believe, but that settles it, kind of in a you know, working theology, it's not okay to ask questions because that's sort of like voicing your doubt. And that's where young adults leave. But one thing that I find fascinating is the very Bible itself never states things that way. You look at the opening of Luke. It's here's why, Theophilus, you can have certainty about these things. I've carefully investigated them. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. He doesn't say, I am God's mouthpiece. Therefore, God said it. You should believe it. Even if you look at Deuteronomy, it's like, why should I believe the future prophets here are the ones that you should believe, the ones who speak the things that come to pass. In other words, you evaluate what the prophet said and compare it to real history, and it has to correspond to reality. You don't believe the prophet if he isn't speaking things that correspond to reality. And so that seems to me that we need to do more
1: work there, especially with our young. I definitely think that that's the case. And, and to portray the Bible as the kind of book that actually welcomes questions, right? It even welcomes doubts. Take a look at two examples that jump out to me in Jesus' own life. John the Baptist, he, you know, stands up to the authorities and says, you've done wrong and all these things. He's thrown in prison. Well, while he's languishing in prison, what does he do? He sends his disciples to Jesus and they say, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, you tell John the Baptist, I feel so betrayed by that lousy so-and-so, that naysayer, that, that, that faithless fool. No. What he says is, you tell John what you see and hear. Go give him the evidence. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. He rewarded John the Baptist's sincere doubt with evidence. And then you have, of course, Thomas. Thomas doesn't want to believe until he sees and feels the scars in Jesus's body. Well, he had the eyewitness testimony, the evidence already, Of his friends, and then Jesus says, you know, you believe because you see, but there are those who will believe who do not see, not because it's blind faith, but because they have the eyewitness testimony, they have the evidence. And Jesus doesn't say, no, Thomas, I'm done with you. Thomas is so enthralled that he goes and he is martyred, tradition says, in India, near Chennai, which by the way, is predominantly Christian, even to this day. Mm -hmm. So doubt isn't a bad thing if it leads us to answers. The difference I would say, Shane, is this, is that it's one thing to be a skeptic, it's another thing to be a cynic. You see, a skeptic is someone who won't believe until there's enough evidence. A cynic is someone who won't believe even when there is. And the trick is, do your doubts lead to skepticism that leads to faith, or do your doubts lead to cynicism that leads to a dismissal of all things that could lead us to God?
0: Well, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast as I've been talking with Abdu Murray. If you head to the show notes, you'll find links to books and articles written by Abdu along with a super helpful video clip on the problem of confirmation bias. Simply head to HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com. And I'll look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives.